Good morning. How are y'all? It's good to be with you this morning. Have you noticed how people love to make excuses? Have you ever made an excuse? I came across a newspaper article in Toronto, Canada about the excuses that people put on car insurance claims after they've had an accident. And their goal is always to make themselves appear less culpable. One person wrote, the other car collided with mine without giving warning of its intentions. <laughs> Another person wrote, coming home, I drove into the wrong house and collided with a tree I don't have. Here's another one. I collided with a stationary streetcar coming in the opposite direction. <laughs> this sounds like a teenager to me. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. <laughs> in my attempt to kill a fly, I drove into a telephone pole. Yet another person wrote, my car was legally parked as it backed into the other vehicle. Yep. This one sounds like a housewife. I had been shopping for plants all day and was on my way home. As I reached an intersection, a hedge sprang up from the floorboard, obscuring my vision. I did not see the other car. And here's my favorite. The telephone pole was approaching fast. I was attempting to swerve out of its path when it struck my front end. <laughs> it's like the uh, pole is just kind of coming down the street, you know, and pew. Well, I say excuses, excuses, excuses. You know, people don't just make excuses to make themselves look less culpable. They also offer excuses to get out of work they don't want to do. Have you ever done that? This was the case with Jonah. God commanded Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Jonah said, no can do. That's a loose paraphrase, no can do. And Jonah's excuse was that he didn't want the Ninevites to repent and be on the receiving end of God's compassion and mercy. You see, he didn't care about the Ninevites, and he didn't think God should care about the Ninevites. He didn't want Nineveh to repent, and he certainly didn't want God to forgive the Ninevites. And so, my friends, I think that we can learn a lot from the book of Jonah. And I want to begin by reminding you of a great New Testament verse, which is Romans 15, verse 4. And it reads this way. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I know that many of us like to read New Testament books, but you know, those Old Testament books can give us encouragement and hope. Even short little books like the book of Jonah. You can read through the book of Jonah in just 15 minutes. I guess I could just read through the book and we'd be done today, but I'm not going to do that. <coughs> it's only four chapters, it's only 48 verses, but it is a book that is rich in spiritual truth. And so what I've done is, uh, what I want to do is to explore 10 life lessons from the book. You may wonder why I'm just covering 10 life lessons. Well, there isn't time for 20, so that's the reason why. Let's look at it. Lesson number one. Life lesson number one. God is abundant in mercy and compassion. God is abundant in mercy and compassion. Uh, in Jonah 1, verses 1 to 3, we read these words. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, 
Go to this uh, city of Nineveh and preach against it because their wickedness has confronted me. However, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Well, that's kind of a hard word to say, Tarshish. Let me just test you out. I want you to say Tarshish three times really fast. Ready? Tarshish, Tarshish, Tarshish. Well, it sounds like speaking in tongues to me. No, none of that, none of that. Now listen, the Ninevites responded by repentance when they heard the words of Jonah. And the whole reason why Jonah's upset about all this is he didn't want that to happen. In Jonah 4, verse 2, Jonah says the following words to God. He said, that's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to become angry, rich in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. So his excuse was basically a bias against the Ninevites. He said, you know, those wicked people over there, those evil people, those people who've attacked Israel, those guys are not worthy of God's compassion like we are. So he thought that he and his people were worthy of God's compassion, but not those wicked people over there. Now, is that the biblical viewpoint? Is God's compassion only for those who deserve it? If that was the case, I don't think anybody on earth would be the recipient of God's mercy because none of us deserve it. Certainly the Ninevites were worse than, than most of us, but none of us deserve God's mercy and compassion. And so Jonah had a little bit of a warped viewpoint. His idea was that God's compassion was for the good guys, but the bad guys ought to suffer. One thing that we learn from the book of Jonah is that God's mercy and compassion is for everyone, even for people that a lot of people think don't deserve it. You know, I had the opportunity to visit Angola Prison. I don't know how much you know about Angola Prison, but for decades now, it's been known as the most violent prison in the United States. It's got over 6,000 inmates, and most of them are murderers or rapists or are guilty of other horrible crimes. Me and some of my ministry associates visited Angola, not just for an afternoon, but we actually stayed there a couple of days. We spent the night right there in the prison. And as you're driving into the prison, there's like this big gate that opens up with guards everywhere. And as you drive through, you kind of look off to the left and you see this 18-foot fence. And with this 18-foot fence, there are four layers of barbed wire. You know that curly barbed wire? Four layers right on top of the other. Razor sharp. There's nobody, no way anybody could get out of there. You know, I remember as we were driving in there, one of my ministry associates prayed out loud and said, Lord, just make sure we get out of here. I could understand his intimidation because we were going to be spending a couple of days with murderers and rapists. But, but here's the thing. Here's the thing that made us want to go. You see, something wonderful happened at this prison. God's spirit descended upon it. The warden is a Christian and due to the prayers of many people, there was a massive repentance that broke out at Angola. There were multitudes that turned to Jesus Christ in conversion. Salvation in Jesus 
was everywhere. And today, in 2016, violence is down over 85% at Angola because of what's happened there. So much has the Spirit of God moved there that there's been a seminary, an accredited seminary, developed within its walls. Now you uh, can go through this seminary, if you're a prisoner, you go through this seminary, and you get your degree, and what we've seen happening is, is that after prisoners go through the seminary and get their degree, they then apply for a transfer to another prison where they then act as prisoner evangelists among these different people. It's one of the most amazing outpourings of God's spirit that I've ever witnessed. And the basic point that I'm making to you is that God's compassion and mercy just exploded there. It just exploded there. So I don't care whether you're talking about the ancient Ninevites who didn't deserve God's mercy or modern prisoners at Angola that didn't deserve God's mercy and compassion or people at Frisco Bible Church. We ought to be really thankful for God's compassion and mercy. None of us deserve it. And yet in Jesus Christ, it is poured poured upon us in abundance. (laughs) Life lesson number two. The disobedience of a single person may have adverse consequences for many people around him or her. This is a critically important point. You might remember that Jonah hopped on this ship headed for Tarshish, and then Jonah 1, verses 4 to 5, tells us, Then the Lord hurled a violent wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And you have to keep in mind that these were pagans, and pagans lived in different cities, and every city had their own patron god. So these people thought that as long as they appeased their patron god, things would go good for them. So you got all these people from different cities on this ship, a big storm comes, and each one of them begins praying out to their local deity in hopes of surviving the storm. But little did they know that the violent storm was rooted in Jonah's disobedience to the one true God. And one of the things that we learn from our text here with the storm coming upon the entire ship for one man's sin is that no man is an island. Sin has a ripple effect. Just like if you throw a rock into a pond and causes ripples to go outward, sin has a ripple effect. And we see this in many different ways in our society. I wonder how many of you have seen the Christian film Fireproof. Anyone out there? Okay, a good number of you. It's a movie starring Kirk Cameron, and the character portrayed by Cameron is having marital difficulties with his wife. And his wife in the movie is extremely frustrated because she feels she's not getting respect from her husband. And she doesn't like it at all that he is habitually addicted to the internet, you know, internet pornography. And because of that, their marriage grew further and further and further apart. He did great damage to their marriage, and the marriage almost ended. The fact is, is that his marriage got so bad that his parents started to become distressed. You see, sin wasn't just affecting him, but also his wife, and now his parents were becoming extremely distressed over this. Meanwhile, his wife at her workplace started to develop affection for another man. And it never developed into a full affair, but you saw the beginnings of an affair there. And then there was a Christian at her workplace that saw that start to develop 
and she was very upset about it. Now, the point that I'm making to you is that sin has a ripple effect. It doesn't just affect the person committing the sin, but it affects people around you. It can affect your loved ones in the, in the immediate family. It can affect your extended family. It can, ex- it can affect people at the workplace. You see, so I think this is a critically important lesson for us to learn. I know in my own life I've seen this happen. Uh, I could uh, really spend the, the, the rest of this hour giving examples of how witnesses one time after another in my own family, because there's been a few occasions in my own family, for example, where we've, we've had some addicts, uh, both cocaine and alcohol, and I won't go into the details, but I can promise you that those kind of things reach beyond the immediate person to affect a multitude of other people, both in the family and in the extended family. So again, this is a critically important point. Life lesson number three, obedience to God's will is not a mere option for his children. Obedience to God's will is not a mere option for his children. The thing is, though, before you can obey God's will, you need to know God's will. And what I'm driving at is you can't know God's will without first knowing God's word. Does that make sense to you? You need to know God's word first. So, obedience to God's will ultimately hinges on us first being Bible students, reading God's word and rightly interpreting it. I'm kind of reminded of the second grade girl who came home from Sunday school one day, and she was so excited about what she learned. And her daddy asked her, well, what did you learn? And the little girl said, oh, daddy, it was just so cool because, you see, God created Adam first. And then God saw that it was not good for Adam to be alone. So God put Adam to sleep. And when Adam was asleep, God took out his brain and made a woman out of it. (laughs) And all the women said, (laughs) that's not in the Bible. That's in Second Illusions, chapter three. We must rightly and correctly understand God's word and then we must seek to obey it. As James said, let's not just be hearers but let's be doers. Now let's look at Jonah, chapter one, verses nine and 10. This is a time of confession for Jonah to the other sailors and he says, I'm a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh, the God of the heavens who made the sea and the dry land. Now stop at that point. Remember what I told you just a moment ago? All the other sailors were pagans. They worshiped local deities from their own cities. But here Jonah comes out and he says, I worship Yahweh, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Clearly he was talking about a God that is superior to all other so-called gods. And then we read, the men were even more afraid and said to Jonah, what is this you have done? The men knew that he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. Now my friends, just as obedience was not an option for Jonah, neither is it a mere option for us. And I really hope that you make note of those cross references I put on the the slide for you. First Corinthians six verses 19 and 20 says, you do not belong to yourself for God bought you with the high price. Now what was the price that Christ paid for you? What was it? It was his precious blood upon the cross. There is no greater price that Christ could have paid for you. He paid the ultimate price for each one of us. So you're not your own. 
You do not belong to yourself. You belong to another. You are not free to merely choose to obey. God calls us to all obey. And then next, according to Luke 6.46, Jesus at the future judgment will say to some people, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? You know, there will be some people there that went through the motions of Christianity, but they did not truly believe. They did not truly obey. It's going to be a scary time for them. Let us always remember, obedience to God's will is not a mere option. Life lesson number four, God sovereignly and providentially works in our lives to accomplish his intended purposes in us, often in very unexpected ways. Now let's consider Jonah 1, verses 11 to 17. I'm going to read you some excerpts. So they said to him, what should we do to you to calm this sea that's against us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them, pick me up and throw me into the sea so it might quiet down for you, for I know that I am to blame for this violent storm that is against you. Meanwhile, the sea was raging against them more and more. Now, meanwhile, the sailors continued to row. They thought they could row and make things better. They continued to pray, but as they continued to pray, the storm got worse and worse. And then we read in the text, then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Now the Lord had appointed a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights. Now some people think this is just a story, a myth. I don't think it is. Jesus in the New Testament said it historically happened. And if Jesus said it, I believe it. Jesus is God, and he would know, right? So Jesus affirmed it, I believe it, and I believe that Jonah was historical. Now there's five good cross-references that I think illuminate what's going on here, and I want to give them to you very quickly. Psalm 89 verse 9 says this. The psalmist says to God, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. So in that verse, we're told that God is sovereign over the waves of the ocean. And then Psalm 95 verse 5 tells us, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Now you can see there's a connection between those two verses because one verse tells us that God created the sea. The other verse tells us that God controls the sea. Doesn't that make sense? He who controls the sea is the one who created the sea. It fits together perfectly. Next is Psalm 93, verse 4. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Aren't you glad that God is almighty? Nothing can stop his hand. He can do anything he chooses to do. One verse I'm particularly excited about as a cross-reference is Mark 4, verses 35 to 41. And this is the verse that talks about Jesus being on a boat with his disciples. And you know the rest of the story, right? What happens? Well, a storm comes up while Jesus is taking a nap on the boat. The disciples get scared. They wake Jesus up and they tell Jesus, we're about to perish. And Jesus speaks the word and the sea is calm. Now, wait a minute. We just looked at verses that say only God controls the sea. What does that say about Jesus? He is God. Jesus is God controlled the sea. So that's a great cross-reference. And then finally, Romans 8, verse 28 tells us this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who were called according to his purpose. Now listen, 
God works for good in your good circumstances, and God also works for the good in your bad circumstances. I'm sure Jonah didn't enjoy being thrown into the sea, and I'm sure he enjoyed even less being swallowed by a big fish. But through it all, God was working his circumstances for good. God delivered him, prevented him from drowning, took him over to Nineveh where he was supposed to be in the first place, and then the Ninevites repented. God worked all things for good. God does the same with us, not just in our good circumstances, but even when circumstances seem tough in our lives. God is working behind the scenes, sovereignly weaving our circumstances to bring about something good. And if I had enough time, I would open the floor up and let you give some testimonies. We don't have that time, unfortunately. But the fact is, is that all of us can think back to see how God has providentially moved in our lives to bring about something good. Life lesson number five. The Lord can bring us down in discipline, but he can also lift us up. Listen to these words from Jonah 2, verses 1 to 10. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress. I cried out for help. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your billows and all, all of your breakers and all your billows swept over me. I sank to the foundations of the mountains, but you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. All right, well, let's compare chapters 1 and 2 in Jonah. Chapter 1 says the, the sailors threw Jonah into the sea. In chapter 2, however, Jonah affirms to God, you threw me into the depths. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. Do you see what's happening here? Jonah sees God's hand in his circumstances. Even though the sailors threw him overboard, Jonah sees God as ultimately having thrown him overboard. In short, Jonah sees that he's being disciplined by God. He's being disciplined by the Lord because of his disobedience. God brought Jonah down in discipline, but as we will see, he also lifted Jonah up by delivering him with a fish and bringing him to, to, to Nineveh. Now here's the thing. God does the same thing with us. God disciplines each one of us when we're in need for it, when we're in need of it. Hebrews 12, 6 tells us, the Lord disciplines the one that he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now just think about it for a minute. God cares about each one of us too much to let us get away with stuff we shouldn't be doing. His motive is a motive of love. If God didn't intervene and let you do whatever you wanted to do, that would show one thing. God doesn't love you, God doesn't care about you. But because he loves you, God gets involved and disciplines when discipline is called for. And I must confess to you, when I was growing up, I got disciplined many, 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 many times. My father was a disciplinarian, and you have to understand, I come from a family of eight kids, and we were all getting into trouble constantly. Why, there's one occasion where my brother Gary and I did something positively awful. This is confession time. Gary and I went into 7-Eleven and we stole a pack of gum. That's right, a criminal stands before you today. But I have a sneaking suspicion that I am among many criminals. 
All of us have sinned. Anyway, my older brother Paul ratted us out. That's right. He went to my dad and said, Dad, you'll never believe what Ron and Gary just did. They stole a pack of gum from 7-Eleven. So you know what my dad did? First thing he did was he got us in the car and drove over to 7-Eleven with us, and he made us go into that place and ask for the manager, and we had to confess to the manager that we stole a pack of gum, and then we had to give him money. Now that was bad enough. But then my dad drove us home and took us into his bedroom, and he said, Now what I want you to do is I want you to write, Thou shalt not steal. Now that's not so bad in itself. But then my dad said, and I want you to do it 10,000 times. 10,000 times. Now this is the summertime. You know, during the summer, kids are supposed to be having fun. But that's not what we did. We spent the rest of the summer writing, thou shalt not steal. Thou, 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 thou. Shout, 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 shout. Not, 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 not. Steal, 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 steal. And what's amazing is that just recently, um, before my dad passed into heaven, we opened up his file cabinet, and there those big stacks of paper were. <laughs> 10,000 times, thou shalt not steal. Now, I must confess to you that it is an excellent way to memorize a Bible verse. <laughs> I have to admit that. And I will also tell you that I'm thinking about writing a book titled How to Teach Your Kids to Memorize Scripture. Maybe not. The fact is, I never stole from a store again. Never again. And not only that, I came to respect God's word. And then number three, I came to understand that my dad's motive was a motive of love. You see, my dad cared too much to let me get away with what I did. If dad said, oh, that's not so bad, go, you know, just go your way. My dad would, would have shown that he didn't really care that much. But he cared about me enough to make sure that I got back on the right path. And we see that same motive of love only much, much greater in our Heavenly Father. He disciplines us because he passionately loves us. He knows the damage that sin can do. He knows how much it's, how much it's gonna hurt you. So when you get off the wrong path and you start sinning, God takes action because he loves you. He did it with Jonah, he does it with us too. Number six, life lesson number six, God is a giver of second chances. And I must tell you that I love this principle. Jonah 3, verses 1 to 5 tells us this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach the message that I tell you. So Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In 40 days Nineveh will be demolished, the men of Nineveh believed in God. So God gave Jonah a second chance. But you know what? One of the really cool things about the Bible is that we see that God gives many, many, many of God's people a second chance. You remember David? David was a man after God's own heart. And yet he sinned grievously with Bathsheba. And it took him almost a year to repent. You see, God then restored him and continued to use him mightily. God gave David another chance. Peter denied the Lord three times. Can't get much worse than that. And yet the Lord appeared to him and restored him. And the Lord then told him, feed my sheep. Peter had a second chance. 
Or what about James, the half-brother of Jesus? You might remember from John chapter 7, verse 5, that James did not believe Jesus was the divine Messiah. James didn't believe. But later on, the resurrected Christ appeared to James. James had a second chance, and he became a believer in his resurrected brother. And what's interesting is that James went on to become the head of the most holy church in, in New Testament times, the Jerusalem church. And not only that, we read from church tradition that James developed camel knees. Camel knees. You, you know why? Tradition tells us that James spent a large part of the rest of his life on his knees praying before the divine Messiah who was his half-brother. You see, it's an amazing thing when you think about it. That's what you call a second chance. I need to tell you, there's probably someone here today in need of a second chance. It may be that you feel unworthy before God. It may be that you feel like a worm before God because you feel like you've let God down. There may be a sin in your life that just keeps on getting you down and you tell God, God, if you forgive me one more time, I won't do it again. And then you do it a few days later and you feel like a worm before God. And I must tell you that Satan is a master at making Christians feel unworthy before God and his grace and mercy. He is a master at it. In fact, I remember doing some reading in Corrie Ten Boom, and she said that's one of the devil's most effective tools, getting Christians discouraged because they feel unworthy. Are you in need of a second chance? If you are, get it right today. Don't leave this place without getting right with God. God's second chance is available to you. His arms are open wide, just as they were open to the prodigal son. Remember that parable? It illustrates how God's arms are wide open to those who come to him. So don't let another day pass. Life lesson number seven. God is always willing to show love and mercy where repentance is evident. God is always willing to show love and mercy where repentance is evident. We read in Jonah 3, verses 6 to 10, the king of Nineveh issued a decree in Nineveh. Each must turn from his evil ways and from the violence he is doing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Then God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened to do them, and he did not do it. Now I want to talk to you about a repentance clause that we find in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 and 8. And this is the key to understanding what's going on in Jonah. Here's what God says in Jeremiah. If at any time, past or present or future, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. You see, so God responds to repentance. I mentioned that some of you may be in need of a second chance. Are you in need of repentance before God? Your salvation is not based upon how well you live your life. It's based upon the Lord Jesus and him alone, trusting in him. However, if there is sin in your life, just know for a certainty that God responds with mercy and compassion to repentance. If you're in need of repentance today, don't let another day pass. Don't let another day pass. 
Lesson number eight, God uses imperfect humans in the work of ministry. Now this is one of my very favorite principles from the book of Jonah because I know how imperfect I am. I, as an imperfect human, have been serving the Lord for decades. I've got many flaws, but nevertheless, God can work through people who are imperfect, people who have flaws. Now due to Jonah's preaching, the Ninevites repented, and then we read this. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to become angry, rich in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, is it right for you to be so angry? Jonah was imperfect. Quite clearly, Jonah was imperfect. But the good thing is, the Bible is full of imperfect people. Full of them. Noah got drunk. Jacob was a liar. Samson was a womanizer. Rahab was a prostitute. David had an affair and was a murderer. John the Baptist ate bugs. He ate bugs. And yet God used him. Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep while praying. Martha was worried about everything. There are no perfect servants of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that leads me to say something very important, especially in a church context like this. <laughs> Could be that you've always wanted to be involved in some kind of ministry, but you've always felt that you had too many warts. You always felt that you were too imperfect, too many flaws to be involved in ministry. After all, only good people are involved in ministry. Well, the fact is, is that only imperfect people are involved in ministry. And you're looking at one in this pulpit right now. Here's what I suggest. If you have a yearning to be involved in some ministry, what are you waiting for? God is a master at using imperfect people, reaching out to others in the name of Jesus Christ. And there are so many different opportunities available for ministry in a church context. I am a living testimony to how God uses imperfect people. Why, I could spend the next five hours talking about my flaws alone, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Life lesson number nine. God is as much concerned about the worker as he is the work. In Jonah 4, verses 5 to 11, we read these words. Jonah left the city and sat down east of it. The Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up to provide shade over Jonah's head to ease his discomfort. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down so much on Jonah's head that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Well, obviously, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is no, a resounding no. But stubborn Jonah said, yes, it's right. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, you cared about the plants, which you did not labor over and did not even grow. Should I not care about the great city of Nineveh? You see, the point that we derive from this text is that God doesn't just want to work through us. He wants to work in us. That baby just said, amen. 
I know baby language. You see, God doesn't want to just work through us. He wants to work in us. If God only wanted to save Nineveh, then the book of Jonah would have ended in chapter 3. The whole reason why there's a chapter 4 is to show God's work in the person of Jonah. Now, isn't the same true of us? I mean, God is in the midst of working in our lives, molding us, knocking off the rough edges, and he does it for one purpose. He's molding us into the family likeness, the likeness of Jesus Christ. You see, when you become a believer, you're adopted into God's family. But then for the rest of your earthly life, God molds you into the family likeness. Now that you're in the family, you start to take on the likeness of the family. And so he works in our lives, knocking off all the rough edges. God did it with Jonah. He does it with us too. And often he does it sovereignly through the circumstances we encounter in life. So I don't know what you're going through, but you ought to have a fine-tuned mind to watch for how God is working in your life and watching for the changes that he wants to make in your life. And then finally, life lesson number 10. It's always in our best interest to obey God's will from the very start. Now, this is really based upon the entire book of Jonah. You, just to review, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah instead fled from the Lord's presence and hopped on a ship towards Tarshish. Because of that, the Lord sent a violent wind against the ship. After a while, the sailors saw that they had no um, choice but to throw Jonah overboard. And then he was swallowed by a fish. And after he was swallowed by a fish, he was delivered over to Nineveh, vomited up onto the land. Jonah preached, and the Ninevites repented. Now, wait a minute, folks. Wouldn't it have been more easy just to obey God from the start? You could have... You know, bypassed all the, you know, storms and the swallowing by fish and then getting vomited. You could have bypassed all that stuff if you just obey the Lord from the start. Now, I think that we learned a big lesson here, folks. We can make our lives a lot easier if we would choose to obey God from the start. You know, in the New Testament, we read that if you would judge yourselves, you would not be judged by God. You want to avoid discipline or at least minimize it? then be a quick repenter. Save yourself a lot of headache and obey God from the start. Don't be a late bloomer when it comes to obedience to God. I can promise you, your life will be a whole lot easier because of it. Now, my friends, as I close with you today, it really comes down to a simple affirmation. And it's found in Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, my God. When you leave this place, if somebody asks you what the sermon was about, this is the one point I want you to remember. Everything else is building up to this. I delight to do your will, my God. You know, I was once um, in attendance at a church in Houston, and I remember that our pastor got up to pray, and it was kind of a silent moment in the church, and people were listening to the pastor pray, and he got the words backwards. It was just the most amazing thing. He said, not thy will, but my will be done. And he didn't even recognize that he did it. Why, there was this old couple right in front of me, and the guy turned to his wife and said, Martha, did you hear what he just said? He didn't even know that he said it. Now, I've never heard any Christian since then say that, but I will tell you this. I've seen an awful lot of Christians who live their lives like they believe it. I've seen an awful lot of Christians who seem to base their lives on the idea 
Not thy will, but my will be done. And it shouldn't be that way. The psalmist affirmed to God, I delight to do your will, my God. And I would like to suggest that this ought to be a life affirmation for each one of us. When circumstances are good, let's affirm, I have come to do your will, my God. When circumstances are bad, let's continue to affirm to God, I have come to do your will, my God. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the book of Jonah, full of hope and encouragement for us. We are so thankful that truly you are a God of compassion and mercy. We thank you that you are a God of second chances. Some of us today, Father, may feel unworthy before you. And I pray a special work of your grace in their hearts today and move them back into a right relationship with you with no more time passing. Father, I also pray that your spirit enables each one of us to live our lives in such a way that we can affirm, I have come to do your will, my God. I pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said,